Well, <clears throat> good morning. I'm excited to be here. I'm thankful for this opportunity to get to continue our series here in Colossians, Image of the Invisible. Uh, this morning we'll be in chapter 3. We'll be finishing the chapter here. Um, <clears throat> and I had a question for you. Have you ever wondered how to have the world's perfect relationship? Maybe it's with a friend, a spouse, with your children, with your parents, whoever it might be with. Uh, you can Google that online. If you Google, how can I have, like the first response is the world's greatest relationship. You could get a book like uh, I saw one, the first ones that comes up is Relationships for Dummies. There's all kinds of, of searches out there for those. Another question for you, how many here this morning are a husband? Raise your hand. How, how many wives do we have out there? Great. How many of you are someone's child? Anyone someone's child? Great. <clears throat> how many of you work for someone? Anyone do that? Or how many of you are the boss or a manager? Great. All right. Well, if you drove here this morning and thought, I wonder if the sermon will be for me this morning. If you raised your hand, it definitely applies to all of us this morning in one way or the other. And today, uh, the challenge of our sermon in this passage is, in essence, it's the application of what we talked about last week. Uh, everything Pastor Harold went through in the, the first 17 verses, the starving the old, living through the new life, all of this is where it's about to get real for us because it tells us how we can live our relationships God's way. We're going to look back at verses 14 through 17 to get a start here. And uh, I won't spend too long on these ones, but they'll help us get a good jumping point today. So Colossians 3, verse 14, the Bible says, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And that verse really gives us our key and our jumping point here today. Jesus uh, wants to let us know through our relationships how we can let others see him in our relationship. And you might ask, okay, well, how do we do that? John thirteen thirty five. Jesus says, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus tells his disciples, if you want the world to know that you're my followers, love one another. They'll see that through your love for each other. And the world can take a look at our relationships as Christians, whether it's with our spouses, our kids, our bosses, our employees, whoever it's with, it's an opportunity for us to show Jesus through our relationships with each other. So we'll jump into the passage here and we'll first see verse 18, Christ seen in the family relationship. Uh, our bottom line first, God wants our relationships to honor him. He wants our relationships with one another to honor him. In that first one, verse 18, Colossians 3, Wives, be subject, or that means to place or rank under by submitting to God's or the Lord's plan, to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. As is fitting in the Lord, that means to put up to God's 
expectations. So first we'll see Christ seen in the family relationship. And first off, Christ seen in the husband and wife relationship. So now by no means does this mean I am an expert in marriage. I've been married for four years now. We celebrated our anniversary last week. Um, But by no means am I perfect. You can ask my wife. She'll hopefully tell you only good things, but she'll tell you I'm not perfect. Uh, So I'll preface it with that. But here this verse gives some roles, some challenges to both husbands and wives first. And it tells the wife to humbly honor and to submit to the husband. And that word there, it means to place or to rank under. And oftentimes that word, we'll think of it sometimes negatively or it'll be used wrong, but it gives the idea of to do that under God's arrangement. Not to place subject under or to submit just to the husband, but in God's plan, to the Lord's plan. You know, in the Bible, we even see Jesus doing the same thing of submitting to the Father's plan to come to earth, to die on the cross and save us. And that's here what the Bible is telling wives to do is their role is to submit or place themselves under the husband in the home. And the key is they submit as to the Lord, uh, to come to God's expectation or his standard. And, you know, he has them for each one of us. We'll continue through this passage and see that, but if we want to live our life God's way, part of that for the wives is their relationship with their husband. It's that God's plan is wives humbly serve their husband in that way. And remember, this is to the Lord's standard, not to the husband's standard, not to the wife's own standard, not to somebody else's standard, but to do it to the Lord's standard. Now, this applies to all the verses we're about to read, and I'll preface it by saying this. Notice also, it doesn't say to only do what you're supposed to do in a relationship if the other party does what they're supposed to do. So it doesn't say, wives, uh, uh, subject yourselves to your husbands if they love you. It doesn't go on when we get to it and say, kids, obey your parents if they're perfect or they're good parents. The Bible tells us to do it regardless of the other person. And the key here is our relationship with God can't be dependent on someone else's relationship with God. It can't be dependent on our spouses, on our kids, on anyone else's. Uh, He's called us all as Christians to do some form of this in our relationships here, to do something. But in this relationship, he's called the wife to place herself under the husband. Now, we, we talk about the wife there, and we continue on in the passage, and we see the husband's goal. The Bible says, Husbands, love or have tender and faithful affection your wives, and do not be embittered against them. The Bible says, Husbands, love your wives. And that word means to do it as God actively prefers. The idea here is that the husband is called to love the wife. That's what God prefers, guys, us husbands, to love our wives, to care for them, and it do it the way the Lord actively prefers. That's what God prefers us do. Now, the same word here gives the idea of tender faithful affection towards the wife. It's the same word used in Ephesians 5.25 when Jesus tells us, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
and died for it. It's that same word there when it means love our wives. And the verse goes on and tells the husband, don't be embittered toward your wife. The, the opposite of loving your wife. And that word gives the idea of a bitter taste in the stomach. Has anybody ever eaten something that it makes your stomach feel so bitter, so disgusting that you can taste it in your mouth? Now you're all thinking of that food right now, right? And so we're all slowly getting a little nauseous and grossed out. For me, it is A&W hamburgers. I don't know if there's even A&W restaurants anymore because I don't personally care to eat there anymore. When I was really young, probably eight or nine, I had a hamburger from there. Had this feeling, right? Disgust, hurting stomach, eventually got sick. Since that day, I have never eaten one of their hamburgers again. However good they may be, if you invite me out to lunch today, I'd love to go. Don't invite me to A&W, though. I would not want to go there, right? Because of that feeling, I want nothing to do with their hamburger because I got sick once. And who knows? I was a kid. It probably wasn't even the hamburger. But I associate that memory with that. So I want nothing to do with it. That's the idea here, right? The husband is so bitter in his treatment towards the wife, he has that same feeling that he almost wants nothing to do for. Uh, what an awful thought as a husband to have such a lack of love that we don't want anything to do with our spouse, don't want anything to do with our wives. Um, really, it means he's so angry that there's no love there, there's no care there. Um, one person said it this way, they're often ill-tempered and provoking Many who are polite abroad are rude and bitter at home because they're not afraid to be so there. Why are we so afraid to be rude to somebody in public? We don't know, but it's so easy to go home and be angry, rude towards our spouse. That's a challenge there for husbands and wives, parents towards kids, right? It's so easy to take our feelings out on the relationships we're closest to. Again, for husbands, the challenge is not just to love your wife if she respects you, if she does what she's supposed to do, but it's to love her and not treat her bitterly no matter what. And let's be real, this can be challenging, right? Because what's going on here is whenever two separate people, two separate people who are different in the way they do things, different in their mindsets, are brought together, as the Bible says, they're created one and created to be one person once they're married, right? There's a spiritual reaction going here, but there's still a physical two people that are trying now to figure out how to live together, right? One person's a morning person, one's a, a night person, doesn't like to wake up in the morning, right? Uh, now it's easier because you see them all the time. It's easier to take out hardships on them. It's easier to uh, uh, be bitter, be rude to them. Think about it this way as well. You know, when you're dating, it's easy. You go home, you leave them alone, you get space away from each other. It's easy to be kinder for a shorter period of time. Like a roommate in college. Anybody roomed with their best friend in college? And then by the end of the year, you're bitter enemies because you spent way too much time with that person? It gives that same idea, right? Uh, the world tells us, hey, it's easier if you try to figure this out ahead of time. Easier if you live with each other. See if you really love each other. See if you're really compatible with each other. Uh, see if you can handle them before you've had your cup of coffee or five in the morning, right? <clears throat> but you see, this passage here is so contrary to what the world tells us. When we live our life God's way, uh, he tells us it's not about 
feeling like we love them. It's not a feeling. It's not a compatibility. It's a choice. My question is, husbands, wives, will we choose to love and humbly serve one another? It's as simple as that. Will we choose to do that? Now, this is seeing Christ in our husband-wife relationship. Let's continue on in the passage and see Christ in the parent and child relationship. Verse 20, children, be obedient. That means listen and do what they say to your parents in all things. That means everything. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. This is how God designed life, and it pleases him when we live our life that way. Now, if I don't look at this side of the room, I'm going to look at the kids over here. So, Shrek kids, I'm going to look over at you. Children were to obey our parents. The Bible tells us that. It means we yield ourselves, we give up ourselves, we obey what they say. Those that have authority over us, right? The Bible here specifically says parents, mother and father, those who are caring for us. And we always want a limit, right? As kids, how much do I have to obey them? Or how far do I have to to take it? And the Bible tells us to obey our parents in everything. A good definition of that is everything. The only exception is if they tell you to do something completely contrary to God's word. So if your parents tell you to rob a bank on the way home today, you cannot do it. Cool? Okay. I don't think they will. I know your parents. But if they do, don't rob a bank. Don't do that. But it does mean if they tell us to do something we don't want to do, or they tell us to do something we don't like to do, or obey them whether we agree or not. Now, there were times when I was a kid. My parents aren't here. I can say it. I didn't agree with them. I didn't think they knew what they were doing right because I knew everything so much better than my parents, right? In newsflash, I still had to obey them, and I probably didn't know everything better than them. Kids, we obey our parents because God says to and because it honors him. That's why it pleases the Lord. It's the Lord's way of doing life. The world will tell us, hey, only obey your parents if you want to. Only obey them if you feel like it and you agree with them. But God... The Lord who died for us and saved us and designed life says, hey, obey your parents in all things because it pleases me, because it's the way I've designed life to be lived. Listen, our parents don't do everything uh, they do because they're perfect. Oftentimes they do it because they want to help us and they know what's best for us. They don't do it to make our life miserable, I promise, And guess what? We don't obey them because they're perfect or they know everything. We obey them because the Lord tells us to and it pleases him. The thing is, God wants us to obey our parents regardless of what they tell us, regardless of whether they're perfect or not. He even wants us to tell them if we don't like the answer, even if it's because I said so, right? With no good reasoning. Obey our parents because God tells us to, and it gives us a chance to have a better relationship with them one day, as well as because it pleases the Lord as well. And better yet, it helps us, another reason, helps us build trust with them for the future. If you can obey your parents when you're 8, 9, 10, 11, when you get a car and you're older and want to go out with friends, they might say, hey, I could trust you when you were younger, 
and now I can trust you when you're a little bit older because you've grown that trust. So obey your parents because it pleases the Lord. Then the Bible goes on to parents. It says, fathers, do not exasperate or stir up or provoke your children so that they will not lose heart. This means become disheartened or spiritless, right? I promise, kids, we wouldn't spend all the time just on you. Dads, don't chase your kids away. Now, there's some applications here for mothers as well, right? The the verse specifically says fathers, but we know that moms have authority in the home. They should still be obeyed and honored as such as well. But notice the Bible addresses the fathers, ultimately giving the fathers... The primary responsibility, the the primary challenge here as the head of the home. And and Paul brings this up to dads because this is where oftentimes it does seem like society and Satan tends to attack the home through the father. You can look at it just historically. You can look at it in the Bible. But you you look at it historically in our country for the last, oh, I don't know, it seems like since the 50s or so maybe, the idea was... Moms go to work, handle all things kids, or send them to school, let the teachers handle it. Dads go to work, come home, and that's it, right? That's where they stop it and end it. And I heard one comedian telling a joke about that. He mentioned his dad. They knew when he came home from work and sits in his chair, you don't bother dad, right? You don't even go to that side of the house when he's there. And they mentioned one time the dad's sitting in the chair, and he goes, what are you kids doing back there making all this and doesn't even turn around, you know, just staring straight with them behind him. And uh, the kids go, we're celebrating our birthday. And he goes, all right, we'll keep it down. And, and it's funny, right, to hear it. But at the same time, a little sad. A father that didn't want to celebrate a birthday with their kid had better things in mind. But today we see maybe the opposite of that. Maybe dad's not around or maybe uh, dads that are around but don't choose to still have a place in their kid's life. Let them, the big deal now is they can make their own decisions and figure everything out, right? It's kind of like, hey, just figure it out on your own. Figure out what you want to do. And here, Paul challenges fathers. He says, don't exasperate, or it means don't provoke them or, or stir them up gives the idea of spurring a willing horse. Now, my wife likes riding horses. I don't know a lot of the, about them, so I might be wrong on this. If you have a wild horse, not very tamed yet, and you go up and hit it with your spurs or you kick it, it's going to take off and run most times, right? That's the idea it's giving here. It means to irritate or provoke. It gives the idea of the dad using parental authority wrong to where it teaches the child to look at the father as the enemy rather than God's authority there to help them. Um, there's also the concept of he exasperates the children. He doesn't give them what they need, doesn't be present in their life, doesn't teach them the ways of the Lord, kind of lets them do their own things to where it does the same thing. It leaves the kid on their own, not growing up in the ways of the Lord. The challenge is fathers, dads, raise your kids so they don't lose heart. Whether it's being discouraged to where they no longer want to follow the Lord, or whether it's breaking their will to where they don't want to do it that way as well, like a military academy. The application is in Ephesians 6, 4. The Bible says, raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, like I said, I'm not an expert. I'm not here to say how to do that. But if you don't know how to do that, look in God's word. This is what it tells us, how to have a relationship with our kids. 
And if you can't find it there, you know, once you've exhausted what it says on that, but you can't find out what age to let your kids have Instagram at in the Bible, when that challenge comes up, you can go ahead and talk to another Christian parent who's gone through it and done it successfully. Look for help in the the community that we're in, right? Because there's other Christian parents around us who have done it well. They've raised their kids. They're still serving the Lord. They have a good relationship with them, and we can reach out to them. If we want to have a strong and successful God-honoring relationships, uh, we need to love and serve each other, and we need to encourage and help each other. You know, when Lauren and I first got married, we looked for people who had been married longer than us, done it in a God-honoring way, people we could reach out to and say, hey, we've got a question. Hey, you know, how did you get through this? People that we could model our relationship after. Same thing for when we have children one day. We have people that we've identified whose kids aren't perfect, but they're raising them the way they should be raised. Or right now, we look for people that have dogs like us that do it the way we want to. Not that your kids are like dogs, at all. That's just where we're at. But if you're an older Christian, you've been married and done it right, reach out and help us. The world has so many awful resources on marriage and raising kids and a lot of unhelpful things. We need it. At a minimum, we could use the prayer. We could definitely use a lot of prayer. We'll continue on now. The family relationship. Imagine here, though, if we let the world see Christ in our families. We have such a different relationship between spouses, between parents and kids, that the world goes, wow, I need to know lips are so different, why they're so strong with each other, that I need to know their Jesus. That's our goal there. Next, we'll continue on our next verse. We'll look at the employee-employer relationship. The Bible says slaves... We'll use it as workers. We'll touch on that in just a moment. In all things, obey those who are your masters or your bosses on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, those who are working for the show of it, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Uh, Next slide. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward, what you're owed, of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Our real boss is Jesus. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. We know that God will be an equal and fair judge of wrongdoing. So the first one here, the Bible mentions the word slave. And I want to give a little background to it here. Um, It it does mean someone who belongs to another, but in the New Testament, the word is used with the highest dignity. Oftentimes, it's used as um, of believers who willingly place themselves under Christ's authority. Now, the New Testament does talk about slavery, but oftentimes, we like to think of our American history of slavery in our country, and theirs was oftentimes a bit different than that. Paul does mention it because it was a cultural thing. He was writing to people who were slaves. They were workers of somebody else here, and he was telling them how to live out that relationship. 
But also here, many times it wasn't typically people like we think of rounded up from another country and sold, you know, as cheap labor in a different company, country. Many times it was an indentured servant type of serving where uh, this slave was somebody that maybe borrowed money and was working it off, right? If I borrowed $30,000 from Clark and agreed to work for him for the next year to pay that off, right? Similar to that. Now, we're not like adverse to that idea. We do that all the time, right? With our jobs every day. Uh, We might owe a debt that we have to pay off for a car note, a mortgage, things like that. Or another thing we're not adverse to is the idea of your work saying, hey, I'll pay for you to get another degree or get this training, but you have to promise you'll work for me for three years or else you have to pay it back. My mom did that at her hospital. And then if you choose, because it's a good place to work or whatnot, you can stay longer. So oftentimes it was something similar to that in the New Testament. And there may have been cases of countries capturing people, making them work for that, work for them, or some people rounded up and sold, although not as prevalent. The thing is here, though, the Bible doesn't advocate it. And without spoiling chapter 4, verse 1, when we get there, the Bible actually denounces slavery as a whole. And we'll see that when we end today. But think of this here as an employee-employer relationship. The employee should obey their bosses, obey them that are in authority over you. For us, a manager, a trainer, uh, an owner, depending on who we work for. But obey them on things of the earth, the Bible says. So that means obey them on what they tell you pertaining to your job, the things here, not if they tell us something that goes contrary to God's word. Uh, The Bible also tells us to serve them as though we fear the Lord. We don't serve our bosses, though we fear them. We don't serve them just to look good on the outside. We don't serve them just to to make them happy with our work, right? We serve them to please the Lord. Uh, You know, here I have a job description. It says, Jason, do these things. That's your goal. And while it's great if Pastor Harold's happy, right, I would like to make him happy. My ultimate goal is to serve the Lord through that. And employees, verse 23 tells us to do our work for the Lord. And this is a radical idea, especially in our society, right? Our idea of work is, okay, we look at our job description. How can I accomplish that in as little work as possible, right? How can I do this the easiest way possible and still get paid, right? And rather, our idea should be, how can I work for the Lord and please him? You know, in the world, the bar of working hard is so low. If you show up on time and are sober, it puts you in the top 1% of most working places. Um, So the bar is so low. Imagine now if we go out into the world and work for the Lord with heavenly things in mind. Employees, know your ultimate reward is in heaven. Ultimately, our compensation comes from God. We might not get recognized for every good thing we do at work. We might not get recognized every way we think we should do, but God knows, right? Pastor Harold might not see every good thing I do. Hopefully he doesn't see every mistake and bad thing I do too, right? But the idea is, going back to the first half of the chapter we looked at last week, of setting our mind on heaven. Our reward is not in this world, but our reward is coming, and we should be working towards those rewards. 
Verse 25 tells us God will ultimately judge for any wrongdoing that is done. He doesn't judge by race or by status of where we work, but he judges fairly and justly. And some think this verse was an encouragement to the slave Paul was writing to. He's saying, hey, where you're working now might be unjust, but God will judge one day. Some people think it was telling the worker to work hard because God will judge your actions. Regardless of whether it's one or the other or both of those meanings, our focus is to serve God and work for him. You know, we may lose our job unjustly on the earth and think that's the wrong thing, but God tells us he'll provide, he'll take care of us and provide another job. We're told to work hard for him and let him focus on the outcome. The application is serve the Lord as your boss and not your earthly boss as your boss. Serve him and let him focus on the outcome. Finally, we come to verse 1 of chapter 4. The Bible says, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness. Grant them what they deserve for their work, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Even earthly bosses here have an authority of God in heaven. Bosses need to treat their employees with justice and fairness. The Bible here tells them to treat them the way they ought to be treated. Treat your employees kind, loving, equally, righteously. It tells them to give to them what is fair. I mentioned that we'd see the Bible denounce slavery as we know it in our country. Think about it. Was in our country's history, the slaves given what they were rightfully owed for their work? No. Bible tells masters, bosses to treat them fairly, compensate them fairly for their work, treat them justly. As Christians, as Christian bosses, we should be the best boss and employees worked for. Not their best friend, not one that lets them get away with everything, but the best in the sense of how we follow the Lord. Because bosses need to remember They aren't the ultimate authority. Ultimately, bosses have an authority in heaven. It's easy on earth to to feel I'm the boss. It's now my way or the highway, right? Rather, it's God's way. We need to remember ultimately the Lord is still above us. We should be as Christian leaders, Christian bosses, Christian managers. We should be charitable, loving, kind, just We should pay people fairly, address their problems head-on, work in an ethical and moral manner. Basically, live life God's way at work, right? That's what we should do. As a leader, don't let your authority go to your head. Be the manager, the boss God would have you to be. Treat people justly, love them, be fair, and remember that our ultimate authority comes from the Lord. Right here, our last slide, our takeaways here tell us in our family, number one, in our relationship with our family, in your family relationships, respond as God designed for each role and experience the unity that God promises. This includes husbands loving their wives, wives submitting to their husbands, kids obeying, parents raising their kids, If we do what we're supposed to do, set our minds on heavenly things, imagine how Christ can be seen in the world around us. Number two, at our job, whether we're the boss or the employee, 
work for the Lord as the one who sees and rewards. The Lord's our ultimate boss, whether we're the employee or the worker. So let's work for him with heavenly things in mind. A good spot to stop here is if you don't have that relationship with the Lord, don't leave here today without knowing how you can have a relationship with him and knowing more about that. Come see me, Pastor Harold. We'd love to share more about that with you. And finally, get in God's word. Colossians 3.16 talks about the word of Christ dwelling richly within you. That's the application for how do we have these good relationships? How do we follow God's plan for our relationships? By looking in his word and following what it has to say for us. Imagine if in our relationships, in our families, at our jobs, if the world started to take notice of a real difference in our lives. Imagine if our bosses saw workers who worked for the Lord and something different. Imagine if people looked at our families and said, wow, they're different. I want to know why. Imagine the change we would see if we lived life God's way in our relationships. Let's go ahead and stand now and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for bringing us all here to your house, Lord, uh, bringing us here uh, safely this morning. Lord, just please help us to take what we've heard, help us to apply it to our lives and live our relationships your way, Lord. Uh, Just please take us safely from here in your name. Amen.